0: You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'll be talking with fellow programming teacher Anjana Vakil about teaching functional programming. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Ren Inc. Ink. No Inc. makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, teaching functional programming. I'm joined today by Anjana Vakil. Anjana, how's it going?
1: Hi, going all right, going all right. Thanks, how about you?
0: Ah, doing well. Okay, so let's talk about teaching functional programming.
1: Let's.
0: (laughs) I think a great place to start would be, how do you define functional programming? Because I've heard different definitions, and anyone listening, I think we should at least get on the same page with where we're coming from when we talk about functional programming.
1: Totally. What is functional programming is the big question, right? (laughs) And if that was something easier to grok, then I guess teaching functional programming would be easier. But I think of it in pretty simple terms. I think of functional programming as the act, and sometimes the art, I guess, of programming with pure functions, where a pure function is a function that all it does is it takes in its inputs as arguments, Whatever information it needs to do whatever it needs to do comes in as inputs. It returns out its output, and that is all that it does. It doesn't do any side effects. It doesn't log anything to the console. It doesn't change any database anywhere. It doesn't have any impact on the world other than returning its return value. And so when you construct a program entirely made up of these pure functions that all they do is take inputs in and return outputs out, you are doing functional programming.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So my definition is pretty similar, like a lot of overlap, which is good. (laughs) (laughs) So I usually define like functional programming style and functional programming languages a bit differently. So I think of the style as basically avoiding mutation and avoiding side effects. And if you do both of those, then you end up like completely, then you end up with a pure function. Certainly, I think it's definitely true that a big part of functional programming is writing pure functions more so than in imperative programming. So I'd say the functional programming style is avoiding mutation side effects. And then functional programming languages are ones where it's very strongly encouraged to write without side effects or mutation. Mm-hmm. I gotta admit though, I struggle with this whole defining it thing. I, I one time I <laughs> I looked up, I was like, what's the earliest definition of functional programming? Like where did it originate? And let's just see what what it was back then. And I found this, I think it was like a 1977 ACM Turing Award acceptance letter of speech or something from John Backus. Mm. And that seems to be where he introduced it. It was titled something, I'll, I'll put it in the notes, but it was something like, how can we escape the von Neumann way of doing programming? And in it, that seems to be where he coined the term functional programming, but it's like unrecognizable to what we talk about today because he talks about things like you can never name your arguments. That's functional programming. It has Mm -hmm. to be all point-free composition. Like, nobody does that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yet, lots of people do what we call functional programming, so it's got to be something more than that.
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I do think that the way uh, folks maybe have thought about it has changed, especially as it has become more, less of an academic exercise and more of a pragmatic tool or type of tool or set of tools used in day-to-day software engineering. I think another way that I've often heard folks describe it is programming without state. So essentially kind of combining, I think, a few of the things that you and I have both mentioned so far to say, all right, if state is the concept of values in your program changing over time, Uh then functional programming is programming in a way where you are not framing the program and its execution as something stateful, as something with values that change over time, but rather that you're only looking at essentially like from the way the world looks right now to the way the world is about to look in one second or one tick or one event or whatever the next unit of time is, what is the operation I need to do to kind of calculate the next thing that's supposed to happen. And so instead of looking at the world of saying, okay, what is, what does this variable look like? And what does that variable look like? And you know, what's going on over here? And what is this service doing? What is that service doing? It's sort of saying, look, in order to come up with the next result or the next moment in time in my program, what is the information I need to know? And let me take all of that and put it into the arguments of a function and do whatever computation I need to do to figure out what the next version of the state of the program looks like. And so I think it's interesting, thinking back to in the 70s, maybe folks were thinking about that in terms of, well, you're not naming your arguments. You don't have addresses and memory that are changing over time that are pointing to different values. You don't have variable names that are changing values. Instead, you just have a function returning a new thing. And so I think there's maybe an interesting sort of lens shift you can do to kind of swap back and forth between different ways that you're conceiving of functional programming. And I think sometimes it might be useful to consider it in terms of mutability and side effects, as you mentioned. Sometimes it might be useful to consider it in terms of state or lack thereof. And I think it's sort of interesting to think about the different times and situations in which we might find different definitions useful.
0: The state transitions idea is very familiar to me as an Elm programmer because that's exactly how Elm deals with state. It's not mm. like, hey, I want to go in and mutate this one piece of my application state. It's like you have this one function that's like it gets as an argument your entire application state and then it returns a new application state. Mm-hmm. And then Elm, the Elm runtime takes care of figuring out you know what surgical mutations to make based on that behind the scenes. But I, as a programmer, don't worry about that. I'm just like... Here's the next state based on you know, what event came in from and the previous state. And that's it. That's all I think about.
1: Yeah, exactly. I've been running into this also recently. So I don't program in Elm myself, but I do a lot of JavaScript. and been recently learning Redux or uh, Redux-like kind of state management in their React space. And it's, as far as I, I understand, also very, very much inspired by the way Elm does things and has a similar approach to kind of thinking about let the stage management tool, let Redux or what have you worry about how to make those modifications. And you as a programmer, you don't worry about that. You worry about given this current information, what is the new information that you need to give me back? And so I think it's interesting then also thinking about that in terms of what that means functional programming is, because I think it's, some people think of it as like a way of doing computing That is completely different from how, you know, von Neumann and just like how we think of imperative or procedural programming. But I also have become, as I've worked with it more, I've started thinking of it as not so much that we're not mutating things or that we're not making side effects and changing the world, but rather that I as the programmer, that is not my job. My job is not to do those changes. I'm going to rely on, and that's where I think your point about functional languages as distinct from working in a functional style, like the language itself can force me as a programmer to keep my hands off the state, keep my hands off anything mutable, and the language or the environment itself can manage that for me in a way that takes that cognitive load off of me and allows me to just think about inputs turning into outputs.
0: Yeah, I really like the way you're framing this in terms of like what is managed by the programmer manually versus what's managed by some sort of runtime, which could be from a language or it could be from a library or something like that. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of garbage collection, actually, in the sense that garbage collection is basically saying rather than managing heap memory yourself directly, like you would in like C, for example, mm-hmm. you're just going to say, I don't care. I just want to think about I want to instantiate these things and let the garbage collector take care of figuring out how to allocate and deallocate the memory for them i don't want to think about that as the programmer Mm -hmm. and similarly with functional programming like in elm for example yeah you're delegating actual state updates to the language you're just saying here's the new state that i want figure out how to make the screen reflect that and you're also delegating in the case of a, a pure functional language like elm you're also delegating effects to that you're saying mm-hmm. like here's a description of all the effects that i want to run they're not going to be run immediately as side effects i'm just building up this you know description of what i want done and then i'm going to hand it off to the runtime and the runtime is going to actually run those effects
1: yeah uh, exactly same kind of the
0: thing yeah
1: yeah and i think when we're thinking about teaching functional programming which goes hand in hand with learning functional programming i think one of the things that i know i struggled with and i think a lot of people struggle with when they're encountering functional programming for the first time, and you tell them, okay, so we're going to program without side effects. We're not going to log to the console. We're not going to print something on a printer somewhere. (laughs) We're not going to update a database that stores your bank account. We're just going to turn inputs into outputs. And they say, well, wait a minute, like, how am I supposed to actually do anything in the world? (laughs) Right if I can't ever do anything in the world. (laughs) And I think, to me, one of the insights when I was learning the first thing about functional programming a few years back that helped me understand this is that, of course, we need to do side effects because we are operating in a world and we need to change things in that world, like your bank account or what have you. And the issue is more, can we push those side effects out to the very edges Of our program, or in this case, even past the edge of our program into the environment, the language, the runtime, whatever it is that's managing those side effects, so that I, as a programmer and my coworkers or my collaborators, don't have to worry about all of the headaches that come along with changing things in the world when the rest of your program also depends on those things and they might change out from under you and that's how you get bugs because you weren't expecting the balance to be overdrawn that sort of thing so i think thinking about it in terms of not eliminating side effects but pushing them far away from me is something that helped me
0: yeah a way that i like to teach this concept is like if somebody's got a javascript background and they're coming to elm and they ask me the question okay but if all functions have to be pure and they can't have side effects, how do you actually run effects at all? So I've liked to use the term managed effects as a contrast to side effects. Mm. So for example, let's say I'm in JavaScript and I have a function that returns a promise. And what that promise is going to do is it's going to do some HTTP request to the server. Mm -hmm. So right when I call that function, as soon as I instantiate that promise, I do like a promise new. It's immediately going to fire off that http request like the second that i instantiate the promise whereas in elm i might do the same thing with a task like i have a function that returns a task and just like promises tasks can be chained together they can represent like i want to do an http request and then i want to do this other thing yada yada Mm. but the difference is that in the elm function when i return it yeah it's going to return this task and that task sort of represents the http request like that i want to have done The difference is just that if I call the JavaScript function 100 times, it's going to fire off 100 HTTP requests. If I call the Elm function 100 times, it's still just going to return this value that describes, hey, I want an HTTP request to happen here. It's not going to fire off 100 times. It's still just Mm. going to be, well, I got this task back. So the difference between task and promise is really just a question of side effects versus managed effects. Side Mm -hmm. effects being right when you make it, it does the effect. Managed effect being, this is just a description of the effect that I want the runtime to do in the future.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's a really helpful distinction. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the follow-up to that is that I think people might have an idea in their head that doing like pure functional programming is going to be radically different in terms of what it feels like day to day than something like imperative programming when it comes to effects. But actually, it's really not that different. You see a lot of things that instead of returning promise, they return task, but you chain them together in basically the same kinds of ways. The only difference is <laughs> uh, like when they actually get executed you know, by the runtime versus immediately.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that was one of the most philosophically fascinating things for me as I was learning functional programming coming from a more imperative, object-oriented, sort of like scripting, very do this, do that sort of world. Right was how much when you zoom out and squint at it, functional programming and something like object-oriented programming or any approach to programming where you're breaking up the world into small operations so that you can think more clearly about what's happening in any individual one. When you zoom out and you look at them with a little squinty eye, I feel like At the end of the day, they're all kind of different lenses on solving the same problem for programmers, which is how do we reason about, how do we keep in our minds, like the information that we need to make sure that we're writing code that's doing what we think it should be doing. Right. And so I think it's interesting, you know, this whole functional programming I don't know, fan club that has emerged. (laughs) You know, functional programming has some amazing, amazing advantages and wins that it can get you, you know, in your day-to-day programming life. But I think there's also a lot of other ways to get those wins. And there's also, I think, maybe more in common between, let's say, the functional and OO camps then we often let ourselves believe, or or then it would also sort of appear at first glance looking at the flame wars that happen on the internet.
0: <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I've been doing a lot of Rust lately and it's just very imperative. Like I know mm. Rust it does a lot with immutability, but certainly not with managed effects. It's it's really like very side effecty. Mm-hmm. And I know that Rust is known for having some like functional programming features, but my personal experience with rust has been i don't recommend trying to do it in like a very functional style i think it's better to just use rust as like an imperative language that's just what it's good at and i also think rust is a great programming language i'm not gonna miss words about that so yeah i, I totally agree with you i think this idea of oh everything needs to be functional and we need to convert all of our code to be functional code is not correct
1: no totally
0: there's also a bit of extremism if you will when, when i see some people talk about the definition of functional programming where i'll see definitions that like wouldn't consider scheme to be a functional programming language or closure which just doesn't make sense to me yeah like i've seen some definitions <laughs> that are like well unless you have static types with higher kind of polymorphism and laziness and the name of the language rhymes with Maskell, then it's not a real <laughs> functional programming. <laughs> you know, like, like, come on, there's a word for that. Just if you like Haskell, that's fine. But that doesn't <laughs> mean that, like, everybody needs to do it that way.
1: Yeah, I totally feel you. And I think to your point about, sure, there might be languages that have something called functions, but that doesn't mean that you're going to have a good time trying to write a highly imperative language in, a functional style. I right. think it's much more important to kind of go with the grain of whatever, not only language or environment you're working in, but also what problem you're working on. And if it is something that it feels like it lends itself to a data transformation framing where you can think about what are the inputs to this? What should the outputs be? Cool, great. You've got a great use case for functional programming. But if it lends itself more to, you know what? I just want to tell the computer to do this and then do that (laughs) other thing. And that's all I really need to do. Like, cool. Write an imperative script. And I, I feel like it makes more sense to have those different approaches, those different paradigms or styles in your toolbox and then to be able to choose the right one to fit whatever your use case is, whether that's the use case of your problem domain or the use case of the particular tech stack that you're working on at a particular company or with a particular group of people, I think it makes more sense to choose the right tool for the job than to just say, we must all be functional programmers now and functional (laughs) is the way and so shall it ever be. Exactly. Okay,
0: so let's talk about some specifics of teaching. Like, maybe let's get into sort of what are the styles that we use for teaching? Like, what are some tips we might give to anyone who's listening who might be interested in teaching functional programming to others? So, you've your background in teaching functional programming. I got to give you props here. So, in addition to your front end master's course, which is like a full workshop on teaching functional JavaScript, we'll put a link to it at the end. You also have what I think, as far as I know, this might be the most watched video ever on teaching <laughs> functional programming <laughs> it's, it's currently as i say these words it's a 2.3 million views on youtube so i mean congrats oh. on reaching a lot of people
1: thank you i think you're talking about my talk from js unconf 2016 learning functional programming in javascript uh, unless yeah. you
0: have multiple 2.3 no. million <laughs> functional programming no talks. just
1: in case folks haven't aren't sure of what this talk is that we're referring to yeah it I was really shocked how much this talk resonated with folks, and I feel totally humbled at how much attention it's gotten, how many folks have found it valuable. I gave that talk. So this was actually my first tech conference talk. Wow. That came (laughs) together (laughs) super (laughs) randomly at an unconference. So unconference format being where folks can pitch talks they might be interested in giving or in hearing, and then... Everyone at the conference kind of looks at the suggestions, the suggested talks, and chooses which ones they want to hear. And so there had been a lot of interest in an introduction of functional programming from the JavaScript crowd that was there. And I thought, you know what, I've just started learning this like within the last six months at that point. I feel like I've grokked just enough to help somebody who is like one step behind me in encountering this wide world of functional programming. Uh And I think that's why it resonated with a lot of folks because I was, and in many ways still am, a beginner. And I was just sharing, you know what? Like, I do not understand this whole domain. You could spend your entire career becoming an expert in functional programming and still not know everything. But I know a few things and I know what has helped me understand the basic concepts. And so I can share that with you. And I think that just speaks to like how important it is when we're teaching functional programming to not get caught up in the expertiness that is often, unfortunately, you know, a part of a lot of of learning materials or teaching materials in computer science more generally, but rather to think about it in terms of what would a complete beginner think when encountering this material? And how can I put myself into that beginner's mind, as they say, to think about, you know what? I don't really care about all the jargon. I just want to know what's the core of this issue.
0: So wait, are you telling me that you didn't start off teaching people about monads and lambda calculus? (laughs) No, not immediately.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One other thought I have is that I think one of the advantages of teaching when you are a beginner is that it's harder for you to get caught up in those jargon terms or in those really complex, nuanced corners of the field. It's really great for that reason to have beginners teaching each other, I think. And so I would say in terms of practical tips for teaching, well, anything, not just functional programming, is like to learn by teaching, right? So to as you're going and as you're learning a new concept, a new word, a new type of construct in a language, to teach it to somebody else, whether that's by writing a blog post for your future self or whoever else might stumble across it in, in the internet, or whether that's giving a talk or whether that's just having a water cooler chat virtually, I guess these days, with one of your coworkers <laughs> about what you just learned today. So I think that's really key to effective teaching of hard, high-level principles.
0: Yeah, I want to follow up on two things you mentioned. So you mentioned sort of like expert birdiness i don't remember what word used i'm gonna say it was that because that's a fun word (laughs) and then also resonate so i think this is sort of an underrated thing is that i think a lot of people maybe have the idea that like i only need to learn from people with the most expertise which i don't think is true especially when it comes to beginner material like if you're going for like super in-depth advanced material okay yeah that's a good point like yeah you probably want to get somebody with the most expertise but the thing is as a beginner Whatever you learn, you're going to have incomplete knowledge at the end of it anyway. You're going to go from no knowledge to some knowledge, but you're not going to have all the gaps filled in anyway. So learning from someone who has all the gaps filled in is really only helpful to the extent that they're able to balance knowing all the edge cases and stuff with holding back and not telling you about all that stuff such that it overwhelms you when you're a beginner. Mm -hmm. So I think it's much more important that whoever is teaching you is doing so in a way that resonates with you. And so to flip this around, this is advice to teachers. If anyone out there is interested in teaching functional programming, I think it's way more important to focus on teaching people in a way that resonates with them and gets them from zero to something, as opposed to going down every rabbit hole and the extreme thing not to do (laughs) would be to talk about every edge case and you're going to need all these monads and category theory and all this stuff that really, especially for a beginner, is just not required to get them up and running.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I wrote Elm in Action for Manning Publications, and I don't use the word monad in the entire book. It's <laughs> it's not necessary. <laughs> it's a beginner book. There's plenty of resources if you want to go. I mean, it's almost a meme of how many monad tutorials there are out there. It's not like <laughs> you can't find those resources if you want. But as a beginner, if you're just getting off the ground, it's not necessary. Also, in the case of monads, I would argue that at least if you're using a language like Elm, it's not ever necessary. But uh, <laughs> but if you want to learn it and you want to expand your horizons that direction, that's totally cool. It's just it's definitely not something that beginners need, in my opinion.
1: I couldn't agree more. And I think that's true of like a lot of the terminology and the jargon, which I think can be very overwhelming, like you said, to a lot of folks as they start to um, encounter these concepts, I think. It is important to be able to speak the language, as it were, of a community so that you can deepen your learning and and understand those edge cases and so on and so forth. But that's something that can come later. Once you have the concept in mind, you can learn a word to put to it. It's harder to tell people, you know what, functional programming is synonymous with this, like, grab bag of weird mathy sounding words. And until you know, and can rattle off the definition of all of these jargon terms, you are not a functional programmer. Like that is not true. That is not the case. You don't need to know those words to write a good program in a functional style that is useful to you and your teammates and whoever else needs to read and maintain it. And I think that starting off with those is a mistake not just in in functional programming but in a lot of topics in computer science starting off with the terminology and forcing folks to wrote memorize vocabulary is not necessarily the most important or, or even the hardest part of teaching a new field or a new concept
0: and this has really practical implications so at, at work we've been starting to use like in the past couple of years haskell on the back end And it's from a language perspective, it's been very helpful, helped us solve some very specific problems, which we've blogged about on noradink.com. But basically, the biggest challenge that we've had is how to get people onboarded. And the biggest challenge there has been the learning resources out there, because a lot of them kind of do what you just said. They start with the jargon. They start with very conceptual stuff and not like it's really common to have hello world be like several chapters in not mm. you know chapter one one of the books that we we got we've, we've been doing like haskell book clubs where we'll try a new haskell book and like you know people will read it and like talk about it and stuff and unfortunately i <laughs> i gave a talk about our transition from rails to Element haskell was the title of the talk and in the, of the talk i mentioned we haven't found any Haskell books that we like enough to recommend to beginners who are just looking for that practical thing. And then afterwards I got a bunch more suggestion and I passed those along to the Haskell book club. And I recently asked like, Hey, do we have any books that we can recommend? now?" I thought, I thought some of those were, were looking better. And the consensus was still no. (laughs) Mm. And I I think that kind of speaks to just why the way that we teach functional programming is so important because if it's not resonating with people, You know, it might feel like this is the right way to do it. It might feel like, you know, especially like you said, there's this academic tradition where a lot of functional programming comes from. It might seem like writing a book that's sort of aimed at grad students or that's designed for or just resembles in a lot of teaching methodological ways the way that it was taught to grad students is going to be effective for industry practitioners and it just falls flat and here i am trying to use haskell at work and we're just like we just want to onboard people we don't have a big agenda here we just the goal is just get them to learn the language that we use on our back end and it's shockingly hard because of the way that things are taught
1: <laughs> <laughs> i hear you totally and i you know what i'm smelling is like a an intro to Haskell project in your future here. (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) I I, I have too many side projects as it is, but I will say if somebody out there wants to write that book, I think there's absolutely a market for it.
1: There totally is. And I think it's also, you know, something that I notice the more that I sort of have been in the tech world and also teaching technical concepts is There's almost like this willingness to perpetuate the difficulty that one had in learning a subject. (laughs) So it's almost like if I had to and I don't know Haskell, so this is just a, a random example. But if I had to learn Haskell and I had to sweat bullets over my way too dense Haskell text that I'm reading in this book that's not made for beginners and forced me to read five chapters about category theory before I could even print anything or get code to compile. I struggled. I felt pain. I felt stupid. I felt like I couldn't do it. I felt like it was impossible. And then somehow I eventually broke through and I made it to the other side. And now When I'm teaching you, Haskell, (laughs) I'm going to make sure that you suffer like I did. And I'm going to make sure that you don't get through that gateway any faster or with any less effort than it took me. And I just don't understand that (laughs) way of approaching things. Like, Don't we want to make it easier? Don't we want to save other people the pain that we went through in trying to learn difficult things? Like, Shouldn't that be our goal?
0: I think there's a charitable... Interpretation of that sequence of events could be that, like, so let's say I'm up in front of a class and I'm teaching in a way where it's not resonating. Like, I've got 30 students in the class. Like, let's say I, w- I was doing a workshop, and at the end of the workshop, everybody, you know, applauds and says thanks, and then, you know, gets up and walks out, and three people out of the 30 come up and ask me questions. This is a common experience that I have. You know, I've done all sorts of ELM workshops at conferences and stuff. And usually there's a small subset of the class who wants to come up and ask me questions afterwards. Well, what are those people saying? They're not saying, hey, um, I was very confused this whole time. Like, nobody says that. They all say, like, hey, great workshop. I just have some follow-up questions because I want to go even deeper into the subject. Mm -hmm. So I think given that, it maybe is just hard to get the feedback that it's not resonating in a lot of cases, you teach a workshop or you write a book and stuff. And you know how many people buy it and what people say about it. And mostly what you hear is positive stuff. You know, it's just whatever subset of people is a uh, positive versus negative. You're maybe just not hearing from, it could be 90% of the class was totally confused and lost. So they don't want to say mm-hmm. that. That's just re- even more awkward. Like they just had one bad experience. They're not going to sign up for another bad experience where they tell you about it. They're just going to walk out of the classroom and never use the language again. Yeah. So it can be hard to, get that feedback, I think.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that what you're saying brings up an interesting point, which is how important it is for folks who are teaching, I mean, anything, regardless of whether it's related to computers or not, but to also be willing to learn from the wide field of education and everything that it has learned about how to effectively teach and check understanding. And for example, elicit information from your students when you're teaching an in-person workshop to understand whether or not they are lost or whether or not they are struggling with a particular thing. And I think that often we kind of think of the teaching as something that just naturally follows from knowing a field really well. So and going back to the kind of expert mentality that comes along with a lot of this, the thought that, okay, if I am a really experienced programmer and I am a really experienced Haskell programmer at that or Elm programmer or whatever, Closure, that I therefore am also the best person to teach others because of my expert knowledge. Again, not necessarily. Somebody who maybe has less expert knowledge but has a deeper understanding of pedagogical best practices and how to make sure that you're not losing people and make sure that you're inclusive of folks with different learning styles, different backgrounds, different cultural assumptions, all kinds of things might put you in a better position to teach a subject like a programming language than someone who, let's say, wrote that language or is the world's foremost expert in it, but isn't really paying attention to that side of the equation, if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, definitely possible. I think one of my favorite Buzzword words, the wrong term. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite concepts from teaching literature is scope and sequence, meaning like, basically, what are you going to teach? Like, what's the extent of what you're going to teach? And mm-hmm. in what order are you going to teach things? Because there's a lot of each thing you teach, building on the previous thing that people learned that can really mm-hmm. make the whole experience a lot smoother. The way that I've taught beginning Elm has sort of like evolved over time. But some of the things that have been really consistent about it, which I think you know, tell me what your experience has been, but I think this kind of applies to teaching functional programming in general, mm-hmm. is to start with practical applications and then work towards explaining the sort of the generalized concepts behind that. So in the case of Elm, like I'll start people off with saying, let's build a basic page that's just like a static web page, no interactivity, then let's add some interactivity to it. I'm not really explaining any more than the bare minimum required to get them from like one step to the next. Like the static page is mostly just they can get used to the syntax of the language, which mm-hmm. okay, doesn't have to do with functional programming yet. But then like the basic interactivity, it's like, okay, I'm gonna explain the Elm architecture, which has some similarities with Redux for sure. And by the end of that, they're like, okay, I understand that a little bit. And I actually don't even get into types and, and type checking until after that, after they've built something mm-hmm. practical. And then As I go along, introduce like JSON decoding and like, okay, here's how you can use some higher order functions and stuff like that to accomplish JSON decoding. And the way that I've set things up is that it's designed so that each step is carefully incremental, that you're only learning a little bit more than what you learned in the previous section. But if I reordered it, like if I shuffled the order of these things, it wouldn't work because Mm -hmm. you would be like, "Oh, oh, wait. What, what do you mean, this thing? And it's like, oh, wait, you haven't learned that yet. So I had to like find what are the dependencies between each of these things, mm-hmm. such that if you learn them in exactly this order, each one feels very incremental and small. But by the end of the whole course or the entire book, you know, you look back and you're like, oh, wow, I've learned a lot of things.
1: Come a long way. Yeah. Yeah. No, that I think that approach is spot on. And it's not always the easiest thing to execute For upon, sure. but yeah. it's definitely an amazing thing to keep in mind. And I think I try to do a similar thing in my introductory functional programming in JavaScript courses. So I mostly teach functional programming in the context of JavaScript, which is a sort of a different challenge, I think, than teaching a language like Elm, where you probably for in most cases are expecting folks to have very little, if any, experience with the language. I think when you're teaching functional programming within the context of a multi-paradigm language like JavaScript or some other language like Python or Scala or exactly, that you have slightly different challenges where folks already know how to do certain things. The thing is that you need to get them to think about those things that they already know how to do in a totally different way. Right. right? And so there, I think one thing that I try to do is start off with and maybe this comes from kind of my background as a a language teacher. I used to teach English as a foreign language before I got into computers. And starting out with having folks read code and recognize, I usually start off with the concept of a pure function and avoiding side effects. And I usually start off with having folks read some code examples and identify which ones are pure, which ones are impure, and build up that intuition or that kind of mental model of purity and of avoiding side effects. And I think that that's an interesting contrast where when you're when you're learning a brand new language and you're just like okay how do I get this program to compile? How do I get a thing <laughs> to show up on the page? How do right. I get words to appear on the screen? It's interesting as opposed to when you're trying to get somebody to almost like think in a new way, which I think is sort of similar to learning a new like human language, right? Sort of like conceive of the world differently go. That's a right. challenge. And so I think starting off with examples and starting off with, let's step back and take a look at some of these things, almost like we're going to a museum and checking out different paintings and talking about how they make us feel. Like that sort, <laughs> of, <laughs> that sort of approach I've found to be helpful in my teaching.
0: Okay. I'm, I'm really curious about, I want to focus in on the pure functions and also just ask a more general question because I've seen this I don't know, on Hacker News or something or Twitter or something, I've seen people debate in JavaScript context, does this function count as pure or not? Mm -hmm. Which is always weird to me because I look at the, um, I'm just like, from my perspective, this seems straightforward. It's like, does it do literally anything other than looking at its arguments and returning a value based only on those arguments and on, you know, constants? Mm -hmm. Does it do anything other than that? (laughs) If so, it's not a pure function. And actually, like one of the practical consequences of having pure functions, which is something that Elm directly relies on, is memoization. If you have a truly pure function, then you don't need to rerun it if you already know what answer it gave the last time you called it. Elm does this. I understand that React God, I was gonna say recently, I have not used React in a long time, full full disclosure. <laughs> but I remember at some point, maybe it was the last couple of years, they announced like memo, which is for Skipping re rendering. So, this is like how Elm has always done this. And in Elm, it's totally reliable. Like, it never gets it wrong. It's basically like instead of calling this view function, which is going to render, you know, some part of your UI, like a really common one to use this with is like a sidebar. It's like the sidebar just basically never changes. So, you can just say, okay, I want to, in Elm, we call it lazy, but it's basically like, hey, I'm going to tell you what the arguments are going to be to this function, and I'm going to give you the function. And I want you to call that, you being the L runtime, call that function, give back the description of how you want the page to look. And if I come back here again later with the same arguments, you don't need to run the function again. Just just give the same answers I gave last time because it's a pure function. There's a 100% chance it's going to do exactly the same thing as before. Mm-hmm. And so that's completely safe. And it never does the wrong thing because, yeah, the language guarantees that all the functions are pure. But I can imagine that if you use that same kind of thing in JavaScript, but your theoretically pure view function actually did some side effect that was important, then the fact that it got skipped later on and did not actually run could make the program do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, Yeah, in your experience, like, is this something that people struggle with when they're learning functional programming? Do they get it wrong? Like, how does that go?
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting because in JavaScript, often, you know, you're writing functions and because you don't have the language constraining you to writing functionally or to only creating pure functions, you can do things like write a function that is pure in the sense that it's deterministic. It always gives you the same outputs based on the same inputs. It doesn't depend on anything else in the world. It doesn't do any other thing than return its outputs. But maybe it uses some built-in of JavaScript, or maybe it uses some other function that you've declared somewhere else or something from a library that you're using, right? And that's where it starts to become confusing for people, I think, because then they say, "Well, well, then don't I need to know whether or not this thing that I'm calling here is pure or not pure. You know, if I'm calling something like encode URI component or something like that, where I'm taking in some string and I may be transforming it in a deterministic way, I have to go look up what. how does this function work? Does it run purely? Does it do anything I don't know about? And so I think because JavaScript exists in kind of the web ecosystem where you're often making use of a lot of these other things that are either part of the language or part of the overall way we do web development, it becomes a little bit more cognitive load to figure out like, okay, if I'm calling out other functions, but I don't have the guarantee in this language that all functions are pure, and therefore I can trust any function that I want to call, then I have to think about that. And so I think coming to terms with that, and realizing that any you include anything in your function that did not directly come as data passed into your function, you might be doing something you don't expect, and therefore you need to guard against that, is something that gives folks pause in JavaScript, and I think probably in other multi-paradigm languages as well. And so I think that's always an interesting exercise, like looking at examples that might be a little bit tricky or kind of misleading at first glance, or might have some of those, I think I know what this is, or is it sort of moments of hesitation where you could get into a debate around it. I've had a lot of those kind of discussions and debates with some of my classes when I, when I teach this workshop. And I think that it's a really good learning opportunity also to be able to debate those things out and think through like, okay, we know what the rules are for determining whether or not something is a pure function. Let's apply those and like really think this through and satisfy ourselves with whether or not we think that this is a pure function, full stop, a pure function, if certain other things are true, a pure function that we can't be sure is pure, but we observe to be pure. Like So I think uh, in a not strict functional language, it does raise a lot of questions around what does this mean? And have I fully understood the notion of purity?
0: Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. That's the whole bundle of complexity we really take for granted (laughs) and not having to deal with in the real world.
1: Yeah. And I think that's why it's interesting that a lot of folks that learn the basics of functional programming in multi-paradigm languages end up then getting curious about these more kind of purely functional languages that do all of that thinking and reasoning and take all that cognitive load off of them and just let them be confident that they have all the guarantees of the language and that they're not going to get any Runtime errors, or unexpected side effects, or things like that. So, right, yeah, it's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but a fun one, indeed. Here's something I'm, I always like to ask people whenever they've gotten a certain amount of experience at a topic: is like, what surprised you about teaching functional programming? Can you think of anything where you know you went in expecting that this was going to be hard, or that was going to be hard, and it was a lot easier, or oh, of course, everyone's going to get this, and then it was a lot harder than that? Anything come to mind that sort of surprised you?
1: Yeah, well, I think other than what we just discussed about around pure functions and that actually turning out to be a more complex topic than I had thought originally, (laughs) I think the major thing that surprised me is just how curious people are about functional programming and how many different people from different walks of life with different types of not just backgrounds, but goals in terms of what type of programming they're doing, whether they're web developers or they're data People, data engineers, data scientists, or whether they're coming from a a sort of like a a very what's usually understood as, oh, but that could be a topic of a whole other podcast, (laughs) language like Java or something like that. How many different people all have these same kind of fundamental questions? So that was one thing that was interesting. But then in terms of things that I think I thought of as being more complex, and then it turned out that they weren't. One thing that comes to mind is like higher order functions, for example. I was always anticipating that to be a tricky thing for folks to understand that you can have kind of functions that operate on functions. But I think once, and this speaks to the power of functional programming, I think once we really broke down that notion of understanding what a pure function is and understanding how deterministic it is and how it captures whatever it needs to know within itself, then starting to think about, okay, well, and that's just an object that you can kind of pass around as input or output or, you know, and you can create a function within another function. And then here you go, here's a nice little gift wrapped closure for you became much more, I think, kind of a straightforward one of those little tiny steps that you take, as you said before, that then you look back and see, oh, wow, I've come a long way. So I think that was interesting for me to see folks really get that quite quickly.
0: Nice. Yeah, I think for me, one of the things that really surprised me was the degree to which not telling people that they were going to not have access to things wasn't a problem. That was a lot of negatives. Mm. Let, me, let me reframe. So let's say that I'm in JavaScript and I've got like, okay, I've got var and I've got let and I've got const. And then I've got sometimes things are mutable, sometimes they're immutable, you know, even within const. In Elm, it's like none of that. You just, everything's const and mm-hmm. everything's immutable. That's it. That's the rule and there's no for loops there's no while loops because if you think about it like what would you even do with a for loop if everything's immutable and const like the whole point of a for loop is you're going to mutate something outside the scope of the loop so exactly or, or do side effects which you also can't do in l but over time i realized that i didn't really need to like dwell on that i would just mention it just be like by the way everything's constant immutable moving on and <laughs> people were surprisingly quick to sort of figure out like okay well you know this is what i have in my toolbox and again because going back to scope and sequence each individual lesson is just introducing the concept that you need in order to do the exercises for the next lesson so yeah people just seem to pick that up pretty quickly what was a lot more surprising to me was the thing that like and this is still true today that's always the hardest in my elm workshop and my front end master's course on it and in the book Elm in action and i think elm programmers who hear this will be like okay yeah i I probably could have guessed that believe it or not it's json decoding (laughs) and it actually has nothing to do with functional programming it's purely to do with type checking Mm. it's just tricky because without going into too much detail i mean elm is very insistent on you need to know exactly the type of everything like there's no any type there's no type coercion there's no hey just pretend that this is whatever type i say it is it's just like nope you have to validate if you're getting opaque data from the outside world and the compiler can't know what type it is, you have to actually validate and convert all of that. And decoders are sort of a pattern for doing that. And there's a sort of a DSL that you can use that makes the decoder look like a schema. So it's nice to read and maintain once you've learned how it works. But when you're just learning it, like the types involved are very tricky. And I don't even know if I could explain it off the top of my head, I'd always have to check my notes. on like, okay, how do I explain the What's going on with the types? The rest of the language is quite straightforward, but this one DSL because of types is pretty tricky. And yeah, it's, it, w- it was surprising to me because I thought that when I was teaching the course on Elm, I was expecting that the functional programming concepts would be the trickiest, that like people would have this mindset shift from imperative. It's like, oh, everything's a pure function. How do we get anything? Not a problem at all. The actual problem really only had to do with type checking, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: which ended up being very surprising to me.
1: Yeah, no, I think that it's easy to say after the fact, but that makes sense. But I think it's really interesting how much, and I think this is an interesting choice also when teaching functional programming, sort of choosing when to introduce types or functional programming languages or environments that are strictly typed and depend on typing as opposed to the kind of higher level, what I think of as higher level concepts and kind of building blocks of learning functional programming of which types is something that I would put, you know, talking about our scope and sequence conversation, I would put pretty far into the process of trying to learn functional programming because I think it opens up a whole series of cans of words (laughs) that can be challenging for folks. So I think it also depends, you know, on their frame of reference. Like if folks have encountered a strictly typed language before that maybe that wasn't functional, they might find that less challenging than working with only functions and things like that but i think it does not shock me to hear that that was your experience
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well cool okay so why don't we wrap up with just some some sort of advice for people teaching functional programming like we talked about not starting with jargon Mm -hmm. that at least non-optional jargon like if if it's okay if there's something that like you know you need to explain pure function great because that's like what the big focus is going to be i totally agree with your starting with pure functions makes a lot of sense. We also talked about like scope and sequence. Like, I I think you made a great point that this is not something that you should consider to be easy or obvious, like what things to teach in what order Mm -hmm. such that each thing feels incremental. So I definitely recommend taking some time to plan out. What are the dependencies? If someone doesn't know anything from scratch, what do they need to go from one, one step to the next? And how can you make that incremental step small? What else did we talk about in terms of advice?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about also the importance of not expecting that expertise and teaching have to necessarily go hand in hand. So one piece of advice I would offer, I mean, anybody, whether they're interested in functional programming or not, is to teach as you go. Sort of akin to this learn in public principle that you hear a lot about. It's sort of like teach from where you are and don't be afraid to teach something just because you don't feel like the world's foremost expert in that topic or because you are worried that you don't understand every single nuance of this topic or every single edge case i think having as many different ways of presenting even introductory material as possible is just the best thing for the entire community. Because as we said before, people come at this topic from so many different backgrounds. They have so many different goals of where they're trying to get to. They have so many different things that are going to come more easily to them or going to be more challenging. And so the more variety that we can have in the people and the ways that functional programming or any topic is being taught, the better off. So don't be held back by feeling like expertise is a barrier or is lacking somehow, like teach from where you're at.
0: Yeah, love it. And also, I mean, you can tell people that, you know, and I'll honestly probably should just be like, hey, I'm not an expert in this, but I am far enough along that I've learned these things and I can teach them to you. Exactly. Nobody's going to hear that and be like, I don't know. You don't sound like you have a PhD in functional programmingology. So I don't know if I can trust it. You. you know, no, people are just like, they want to learn. And mm-hmm. nothing is harmed by being more transparent about where what your background is.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think another point I would highlight would be that functional programming, I mean, this might look different if you're working in a pure language like Elm or something like that, but it, it also doesn't have to be all or nothing. Somebody can learn a little bit of Elm or they can be a JavaScript programmer who usually writes imperative code but learns a little bit of functional programming and that can help them think about their own imperative code or their language that they usually work in in a new and different way without them needing to become a foremost expert in functional programming or a hardcore Haskell programmer or what have you. So I think it's also important to keep in mind to teach not just like the mechanics or the, this is how to become a professional, whatever programmer, but rather to also think about the higher level. Okay. Functional programming is really great for transforming data. It's really great for taking inputs and turning them into outputs. And if that's all you take away from an article you read or a class you attend or what have you, you can then, when you next have a problem that looks a lot like it would be well-framed as data transformation. You can think about what you learned about functional programming, about pure functions, about taking in the information that you need as inputs and just returning your outputs. And you can kind of apply that, even if it's not in a straightforward, I am doing pure functional programming kind of way.
0: Right. So teaching students how to practically apply this knowledge and not just like, here's the concepts, bye.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And how to identify good use cases for different paradigms. That's something that interests me. And I you know, I think that functional programming is super cool, but I also think that lots of other programming paradigms are really interesting. And I think learning how to look at the world in a functional way doesn't necessarily mean you have to now only see the world as functions. And I think teaching folks when it's useful to conceive of a program as made up of pure functions and what problems that's well suited to and what environments and what use cases is a often overlooked part of I think functional programming education. So something I I would like to also get better at and I hope we all as a community can continue to think about.
0: Absolutely. All right. Shall we move on to picks?
1: Ooh yes. Let us
0: cool. Do you want to kick us off?
1: So some picks. Well there is a conference coming up in September that I'm going to be at. I think you are also going to be at. And I yes. think a lot of other folks, especially folks who are into functional programming, are going to be at, which is Strange Loop. Yeah. So if folks haven't heard of Strange Loop, it is, I have never been there in person, but I have watched so many of the talks that I feel like I have. So this is going to be my first time. I'm very excited. I'm teaching a workshop in collaboration with my coworker worker Mike Freeman at Observable about building generative art tools. It's not, so not a cool. functional programming workshop, but it should be fun. And there is a lot of other good functional content. So yeah, folks can check it out. Thestrangeloop.com. It's happening in September. They're going to be live streaming the talks. So definitely something folks might want to Tune into. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I guess I got to do a shameless plug also for my front-end master's course. So I have a course called Functional JavaScript First Steps, which is a very light and friendly, gentle intro, gentle bathing in the shallow warm waters of functional programming (laughs) that hopefully sets folks up to be able to go on and dig into some of those more intermediate and advanced functional courses that are out there. So yeah. I hope folks find it valuable and uh, always, always welcome to feedback. And uh, yeah.
0: Awesome. Nice. Well, I guess that's a good segue for me. I'll, I'll also have a front end master's workshop on Elm. Introduction to Elm. I also have an advanced Elm, but I recommend starting with the intro to Elm <laughs> for sure. I <laughs> also have a book, Elm in Action from Manning Publications. I'm also going to go off the beaten path here and make a totally off the wall recommendation. This is This is probably the most niche item of clothing i own is the a7 grip shirt and it solves an incredibly narrow problem for me which is so let's say you're at the gym and you're doing a bench press and as i've learned it proper bench pressing technique is you want to like arch your back and press your upper back into the bench like with your feet and kind of like get everything like under pressure but if i if my upper back is sweaty it slides on the bench of my gym it's really annoying <laughs> So I used to have this problem, and then I found out about these shirts, and it's just a t-shirt that's got this like grippy material on the upper back. And sure enough, I tried it out, and I don't slide on the bench anymore. <laughs> like I said, this has got to be the most niche article of clothing that I've ever purchased, but it totally works. And if anyone else out there has ever had that problem, now you know. There is a solution. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Amazing. I can't say that I have ever or do anticipate ever in the future having that problem, but, but if, if you I ever do somehow <laughs> start exercising, <laughs> I will keep that in mind.
0: <laughs> nice. Well, I think when we're doing a show about functional programming, it's important to include something that is even more niche than, uh, <laughs> than functional programming.
1: I love it. I love it. And it speaks to the fact that, you know what? Sometimes the key to learning functional programming or learning how to teach functional programming is to step away and do something totally different, (laughs) like some bench presses. So yeah, love it.
0: Awesome. Anjana, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great, wonderful conversation, and hopefully it's helpful to anyone out there uh, learning functional programming or, or learning how to teach functional programming.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's always a pleasure chatting and hanging out. And yeah, this has been really fun.
0: Awesome.